funny thing, this is usually on my skip list. I'm not 100% sure why, having rewatched it. This is alright. In fact, it was one of the better episodes so far. Mostly due to an excellent performance by Robert Walker, the gentleman who plays uh, Charlie. And by the writer, D.C. Fontana. Miss Fontana. Well, you know that name. <laughs> if you've if you followed science fiction, you probably know that name. Don't front. What's interesting is this was her first writing credit here. She already worked as secretary. I actually brought her up back in the lead-up video. And, oh, excuse me, she ended up writing another nine or so episodes for TOS. And working as major story editor until uh, till the end of season two. She ended up working on TNG. She was actually brought in to be part of the original crew. Uh, when Roddenberry was putting together TNG. And then she left. Now, what's most interesting about that is she left quietly and stayed quiet about why she left for almost 20 years until finally there was a big uh, thing, an effort to, to compile what happened in the making of TNG called Chaos in the Bridge, which Shatner was a big pusher behind that one. I've actually discussed that before. When she finally admitted that it was because of Meislish, which is a name you've probably heard before. I've brought him up on TNG, and he's been coming up here as well. He apparently was uh, aggressively rude and unpleasant to her, and in addition to doing things that were actually illegal. So that's cute. Nevertheless, Miss Fontana is an invaluable induction into Star Trek canon, uh, and is probably one of the other... We got, like, what, 20 different people who all just kind of contributed to making this show what it is? And she is one of them. I, I hate to say that. You know, she's the biggest one. No, that, that, that's the kind of thing you'd normally hear from someone like me. But as I have gone through this, and thanks to my own understanding and experience, no, there's there's a lot bigger. Even saying 20 is probably low-balling it by quite a bit. But she gets credit. Of course she does. Why wouldn't she? This is also our first Enterprise-only episode, as in an episode which occurs entirely on the Enterprise. Usually done for budgetary reasons, this also would happen uh, five other times across the course of the series. That's also part of the reason why this one was pushed forward in terms of uh, release date, was because it was ready to go before a lot of other episodes were. And as I mentioned, this is one of the episodes that was in the running for actually being the first episode broadcast, but you know how that is. Because, yeah, they finished the post on this really early, and it's like, yep, okay, slow it in. <laughs> behind the scenes is just fascinating here. One other little bit of behind-the-scenes perspective. Did you know that this is the last episode where it was regular for the female crewman to wear pants? I'm not actually joking or making that up. From this point onward, it'll be the miniskirts. I've heard uh, like three or four different accounts of why the miniskirts are on this show. I've decided that since all of them are completely different, I'm just not even going to try to explain that one. So uh, make up whatever excuse you want to. All of them boil down to the same one thing, though. Sexy. Because, duh. <laughs> I'm, don't mistake me. I actually appreciate a nice miniskirt. It's just... Really? Standard uniform? Anyways. <clears throat> so... This is directed by Larry Dobkin. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. This is his only directing credit. 
It's just, it, it, when I start these things, I never intend for things to be trends. It's just as I dig into the series, it's like, well, here's this thing, and here's this thing, and here's this thing, and here's this. Like in Deep Space Nine with the with the characters who would never come back again, which was just a, a really weirdly common thing in early DS9. <laughs> but in this case, uh, the directing thing, like this, we're, up to, we're only up to like episode six or whatever, but still, we have had a weirdly large number of directors who will never direct anything again. However, he will actually be in Star Trek again as Ambassador Kell over in uh, Enemy... No, oh, what's the name of that episode? It's the episode where Geordi gets reprogrammed by the Romulans over in TNG. I don't actually remember the name of it off the top of my head. Um... It's one of the episodes with enemy in the title, I think. I could look it up, but it doesn't matter. The point is, in this episode, he's directing it. He uses some good camera shots and some good angles. and We also get a really good performance out of Walker. I already praised him earlier, but I'm going to praise him again. So he was a method actor, and as we'll be talking about elsewise in this year, more than once, method acting, method acting can go well, but usually goes badly. Um, in this case, though, the, the specific method he used was he stayed offset and didn't interact with any other of the cast and crew until it was time for him to come on set and actually do his lines to help distance himself even more from everyone else so that we had that pseudo-awkward discomfort thing, which he does a really good job of. There are two exceptions to that, actually. He himself has mentioned several times that both Nimoy and Shatner took him under their wings and was like, here, and helped him with acting, you know, just... just how to act in his roles, and did a very good job of it, apparently, which is appropriate. So the episode starts. First thing we see is he does the eye roll thing. He actually kind of crosses his eyes, too, which just looks weird. And all of a sudden, they instantly praise him. He's great. He's amazing. He's wonderful. He's incredible. He's the best guy ever. It's just, it's so great. Please, please get him off our ship. Please. And then the episode's cold open. So that's a good cold open right there. Yawn attack. And then he sees Yeoman Rand. And is like, is that a girl? <gasps> it's a girl. And then the cold open ends. And at first I thought that was weird and strange, but on the other hand, it actually makes perfect sense. Because there are two elements to this episode. The threat of the week and the character. Now, I'll go ahead and talk about this now. One of the things that I think really works here, and this is definitely on Fontana, is the construction of the episode informs the character for over half the episode. It's like 27-ish minutes in before he actually becomes a threat for the first time, really. Now, I'm not counting the destruction of the Antares, because that's, that's more a matter of foreshadowing than actually being a functional threat. I know I'm splitting hairs, but the point is, the first 27 minutes is all about Charlie, it's all about his character. It's all about how he works. Now, what's one thing I have said a bajillion times when it comes to Star Trek? Rough exaggeration. Star Trek lives and breathes on the strength of its guest stars. I've said that a bajillion times. Now, obviously, there's a lot of exceptions to that, and obviously they need a good main cast, and they need a good chemistry, and all sorts of other fun things to help make a Star Trek show really good. But those good guest stars, those really help flesh out the... The, a, a huge bulk of episodes, but also a huge portion of said episodes. If you don't have good guest stars, then well, you have a lot of early void, or don't you? <laughs> so that's it's important here because this episode is all about him. 
We get a little bit of characterization for Kirk and a very, very, very minor amount of characterization for Uhura, and that's basically it. But this episode is all about Charlie, so he needs to be able to hold the episode up on his shoulders by himself. The combination of actor, writer, and uh, director do manage to make that work. This is, for example, in contrast to... Uh, coming of age? No, that's the wrong one. There's an early TNG episode, which is all about this Admiral dude who's de-aging, if you happen to remember the one I'm talking about. I wouldn't be surprised if you didn't. Several people I've talked to have forgotten that episode even exists, because it is entirely about the guest star. In my opinion, that didn't work. Same thing with uh, Amanda Rogers, to use another example of that. They need to be able to carry the episode, and there needs to be some kind of connecting thread. In this case, the thread is to Kirk, but even that is kind of a vague thread. So I, I'm, I'm just talking in circles at this point. Good job, Woo. So he goes to McCoy, and he's like, do you like me? McCoy's like, well, yeah, why not? He's just so casual about it. Oh, I just, I want people to like, I mean, I need to make people like me. And he sounds threatening, and the music sounds threatening. And McCoy just shrugs it off, because of course he does, because he's 17 and has had very little contact with other human life. No, really, think about it. So McCoy, rather logically, actually, is just like, don't worry, most 17-year-olds do. It's cool. Also getting out the age there, which is pretty important. Then there's a scene that was actually cut from syndication, which is important because it helps to establish something. It's actually a plot point, or at least a character point, as minor as it may seem. He sees these two workers, and one of the dudes gives a butt pat to the other dude, like, hey, good work, see you later. It's a really light thing. It's actually more like a hip pad, if I'm being completely honest. But it's that kind of a gesture. So then he tries to talk to Rand, and he gives her a, a, a butt pat. And she freaks out, because of course she does. And then she has trouble explaining why that's wrong, which you'd think that would be a really easy thing to explain, but what the hell do I know? So then he's just confused. This is so strange. I'm just trying to do this right, and I don't understand why this is working. I mean, that's what they did, so why can't I do it, too? This is also another first. I'd like to say this is our first godlike alien, but no. A, he's not an alien, and B, Gary Mitchell. But it is worth noting that we have now had two super-powered Q-like entities within the first ten episodes. Interesting track record we're establishing here. Anyways, <clears throat> but we do have a first McCoy and Spock argument. It's the first time the two really get into each other's grill about something, and of course one of them is arguing logic, and the other is arguing emotion, and we'll be seeing more of that in the future. Funny that Fontana brought us that particular dynamic between McCoy and Spock. Another valuable contribution to science fiction that she made anyways. So this then leads to the discussion about the Thasians and how they're a myth, and it just, it just gives a little bit of backstory and expo exposition before we segue into Nichelle Nichols singing for several minutes. I have, I have nothing to say about this scene. <laughs> She's a good singer. Originally, it wasn't actually supposed to be singing, but Michelle Nichols actually can sing. She was a singer, so they wanted to change it to take advantage of that, so she sings for a while, and there's some music, and then she loses her voice. <gasps> first bit. This is actually technically the second bit, if you're paying attention, but this is the first time on the crew where he's demonstrating how childish he is. Yeah, let's go ahead and call it the second. You know why? Because the first time... Well, he needed that adulation. He needed that praise. You know what that feels like, don't you? I do. I'm not ashamed to admit that. I would love to be the kind of person that other people praise. I would. Now, 
you know, I'm, I'm in my late 30s, I'd rather actually earn that praise and have the praise be there for a reason. The praise itself, put simply, is not actually what I want. I want to do something worthy of praise. However, it's easy to see that mentality of just wanting the praise itself. The quick and easy answer, which certainly would apply to someone who is a teenager who has no experience with other beings, or at least other beings of his own race. Yeah. So, <laughs> that's the first bit. The second bit, again, keeping with that mentality, is he shuts off her voice just so he can take all the attention to himself. Then he performs some magic tricks with the cards, which they use editing to make happen, so shrug, nothing fancy here. But he does perform these magic tricks, and he gets the adulation, which ties in with the earlier point. This then leads to... Oh, by the way, he, he uses godlike powers to impress a girl. I'd laugh at that, but man, that is so human-relatable, isn't it? Be honest for a second. When you were younger, like in, in the teenage range, how many of you had at least once either a dream or a fantasy or just an idle thought, imagination, of being you know, powerful in some way, having mutant powers or being a mage or being a cute, whatever, and using it to impress someone. I will absolutely raise my hand on that one. When I got older, I started to turn those into uh, storyboarding, for lack of a better way to put it. Trying to storyboard what would happen in the scene and then removing myself and the woman of my affection from the scene as well and just trying to design a new thing. Trying to turn my idle fancy into something useful because that's all that really is, is idle fancy, right? We learn this over time because we're people who live amongst other people and grow and learn. At least some of us do. Some people never grow up. That's the whole purpose behind the concept of a man-child. But either than that... Yes, either. That's how it's pronounced now. <laughs> regardless of that, or irregardless, if I really wanted to piss people off, Charlie has none of this. He's rude. He's actively rude to Tina. Oh, hang on, actually, rewind. First, he plays 3D chess. No, there's no rules for 3D chess, and 3D chess will not actually get rules ever in the course of Star Trek, just like Dabo never did. We, of course, in real life, have looked at that and said, well, we can come up with rules, and that if you look up the rules for 3D chess, you'll probably find about mm, 700 billion rough exaggeration, different types of rules that people have invented for 3D chess. There are at least two that I know of that have gained some popularity and, you know, are actually things that you can play in, like, you know, a tabletop simulator or just with the actual boards that you can physically purchase. But either way, yes, it's either now. See, we keep switching it up. I'm trying to keep you on your toes. Because the next thing that happens is he gets crunched by Spock in two or four moves, depending on how you're counting. Just absolutely destroyed. And he gets all upset about that, because of course he does. This is another very relatable thing. How many of you have been really interested in blank, and you really wanted to be good at blank, and so you tried it and you sucked at it? I will once again raise my hand on this one. Now here's the fun part. How many of you got really frustrated at that initial suckitude and gave up? I will once again raise my hand on this one. Now, things you really get into, things you really tend to push yourself into, or once you've obtained the emotional security to be able to say, it's okay to fail. And again, there's no judgment in that, by the way. It takes learning and growth to get, to get used to the idea of failure being acceptable. Because life and human, right? 
So once you get to that point, then you could keep trying if you really want to, and then you could get better because practice and time and work, right? But of course, he just wants to win, but, and so he's actually upset. No! No, I didn't lose, and he gets so upset that he actually melts his own pieces. That amuses me. Then he's really rude to Tina, because she's not you. You're the only one who matters, Rand, and I'd love to make fun of this, but honestly, yeah, no, that's another one, which I've seen. I've never actually been this bad, um, but that's because, as I've said a few times, I've never actually pursued a woman uh, in my life. I'm the one who is usually asked out, and by usually, I mean 100% of the time. But that first crush thing, yeah, no, I've seen this. I've seen people who are absolutely disconsolate. Oh my god, my life is over. You don't understand what I'm going through. You can't understand. This is so emotionally turmoil, tumultuous. Tumultuous. There we go. Tumultuous. Yeah, sure. We'll make that a word. And he's having so much difficulty comprehending what he's feeling and dealing with because he has absolutely no experience with any of it. And and all his brain is doing in the background is just blaring this giant klaxon, girl, girl. So he has no idea how to cope with it. For once, I buy the romance of the week, or the romance that Star Trek posits, because this isn't even close to romance. This is literally a crush. This is a first crush by someone who, unfortunately, is 17 before he actually interacted with someone of the opposite gender, or the gender he's interested in this case. But you get the point. He, he finally meets someone of the gender he's interested in. He's already 17. That is a recipe for disaster without having superpowers. So he freaks the heck out, and of course he does. Why wouldn't he? All of this, if, if I'm not making it clear, all of this is making Charlie very relatable and understandable and building him up as a character. Like I said earlier, this is the strength of the execution and the construction of this narrative. Because we start to sympathize with him, we start to empathize with him. We start to understand where he's coming from. There's actually a fairly extended and really good scene between Kirk and Charlie. Charlie rants about being wrong. Kirk understands completely. Your feelings matter, but her feelings have to matter too. But she could love me. Well, maybe. But you, you don't get to choose that. You don't get to decide that. You have to work towards that. There's a million things you can have and a million things you can't, and that's just life. And he can't cope. He can't deal with it. I'm trying, but I don't know how to process this. And Kirk actually reaches out to him, proving that Kirk is a better dad than Picard. Oh, sorry. I wasn't supposed to say that part out loud. So Kirk decides, okay, I'm going to go ahead and teach you. So he, he tries to teach him martial arts. I was going to make fun, but actually having that kind of self-control and physical exertion is actually something that can help, especially when it comes to romantic natures. No, really. Aside from the fact that your blood is pumping and all that fun stuff, the point is that you are focusing on controlling your body when it comes to most martial arts. Uh, judo is something I myself practiced when I was much younger, much, much younger. I don't, I, that was before I lost you know, proper use of my legs. I don't even think I can do it now. But, you know, it, it teaches you to have more control over how you move and what you move, which itself can be a bridge into figuring out how to center yourself emotionally and mentally. So I'm actually with Kirk and his idea here. And he, he does some good stuff. He even starts at the bare bones. Let's just learn how to fall. Which is good. That's actually good, yes. Uh, my first lessons were also about here's how you fall, and it was kind of boring, but they were also critical and necessary. Charlie, of course, child, lack of self-control, I don't want to. 
Okay, well, let, let's move on to throwing. Okay, so they do the throws, and everything's going reasonably okay until the guy decides to laugh at Charlie. Now, it's a fake laugh, so how much of this we could judge is up to you, but I don't think there was any real malice in the mockery. Just, <laughs> yeah, he just got kicked. He just got whooped by the captain. Uh, oh, and then he dies. Or whatever happens to Vanish We never find out if he comes back. Janice comes back, and they mentioned they restored your crew, so I'm guessing he comes back. It's never shown. Anyways, but he gets he gets destroyed and killed, and now, about 27 minutes into the episode, now the threat shows up. Now, we've seen hints and, and, and intimations of the kind of powers he has. We already saw the thing with the other ship, we are the Antares. We already saw that he had the ability to mess with communications. Uh, what else? There was, oh yeah, the chickens, the turkeys thing. That's another thing. So now we've got... And now he's actually killed someone pretty much right in front of Kirk. This then immediately leads to him getting rid of all of the phasers on the ship. I hope they got those back too. Those are going to be necessary in the future. So, he's called the task for blowing up the Antares. By the way, nice fact, the episode at no point winks at the camera over this whole premise. Charlie is treated as a child who has the powers of a god. And that is treated exactly as terrifying as it should be. I've talked about this before. You know, there's two types of terrifying. Someone with great power who knows exactly how to use it, and someone with great power who does not. And those are both two very different types of horror, but they are both horrifying nonetheless. So the the core trio talks this out, and they debate this, and Kirk realizes he has to, by force of personality, try to buy them some time and figure out what they're going to do. Charlie naturally just pushes back more and more and more about this. You'll notice when he's called the task for the Antares, he justifies it. Oh, well, you know, they they didn't like me. They wanted to get rid of me, and they weren't nice to me. And um, it was going to blow up anyways, you know. I mean, it was it was practically broken down. It was going to happen anyway. It wasn't just me. God, I feel like I've heard those two arguments before so many times. I never made that last argument, by the way. I just, as a point of pride, I did make the former... Uh, yeah, so he just wants to get to the colony. Plays with the crew, just has fun with it. Kills Rand. <sighs> You'll notice the escalation is very sharp after he officially becomes a threat. Because the ne yeah, he, he goes down and he's like, Rand, I love you, I love you, I love you. No, you don't. No, you don't. And what's funny enough is she flat out says you don't know what that word means, which is accurate. And he says, well, just teach me. I need to know. <sighs> this is one of the reasons why the X-Men are so terrifying. Oh, yeah, you, you, you develop your superpowers around puberty. <sighs> so, <laughs> no, thank you. Yeah, he uh, horriblenesses his way through there. And Rand actually slaps him. So he naturally kills her. <laughs> just, wow. And then tortures Kirk and Spock and then forces them to do what he must do. And... They try to lock him into a thing with a force field. This is this is probably the only part of the whole episode that doesn't work for me. They're in this very precarious position. Kirk has successfully bluffed his way to getting Spock's legs fixed because he broke Spock's legs and apparently made a big dent in the wall. And was like, okay. And then they lead him to a room with a force field. What? What did you think you were going to accomplish there? I, I really don't know what they were thinking with that other than padding. This then leads to several successive scenes of him just screwing with people. Now, I bring that up because 
So one of the concepts I've talked about a lot is venting. You're upset, you're hurt, you're stressed, you've had a long day, you need to vent, right? Proper adult venting is one of those things we need to learn and, frankly, need to be taught as we are growing up. Um, playing a video game, having wild sex with someone you love, um, going exercising, uh, working on your model, cooking, doing a really strenuous sport like, like boxing or kickboxing or the exercises Kirk showed, right? We all have different methods that work for us that we have learned as we grow up to vent in order to try and have a healthy outlet for all of those things that, we have, that, that we're bottling up that we have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, right? We need de-stressors. We're human, again. So this is exactly what Charlie's doing. The catch is what he is doing is astonishingly unhealthy and actively malicious, if I might be so bold. You know, what he does is petty and childish. He sees Tina and he turns her into an iguana. And he, he, he gets rid of the woman's face just because she was laughing. Not at him, just in his proximity. And he freezes the other woman. He just, he just does stuff because screw you, because he's venting and he has no idea how to. Now, <laughs> by the way, I'm going to make the hide and cue reference again. Um, this then leads to the Thasians finally showing up and being like, hey, hey, sorry, our bad. We didn't realize he was gone. Sorry about the Antares. They're super dead. We can't bring them back, but we'll restore your ship and crew. Uh, we, we, we can't take his power back. Why? Why can't you remove his access to this power that you have granted him? I'm just curious, because, like, what the crap? <laughs> it also, well, it leads to the ending of the episode, doesn't it? Even in the end, when he is desperately begging, Kirk, and this is a nice moment, Kirk makes an appeal for Charlie, the guy who's, been, who's tortured him and killed his crew members and destroyed a ship, but Kirk still reaches out to him. Now, I like that. And the reason I like that is because that is still very human. Remember, Charlie is, in a really horrible way, both the victim and the victimizer here. He is someone who legitimately has no understanding or concept of who or what he is. And that's without adding the superpowers. This is someone who would have to be very carefully taken care of and guided. Again, assuming he did not have his powers. Add in the powers to that mix? Well, we get this episode, don't we? Unfortunately, powers cannot be reneged. And thus the Thasians are quite right. He cannot exist amongst Cormal society. Because as we know, any time a superhuman is entered into human society, it is the destruction of that society. We heard that back in Where No Man Has Gone Before. You remember that? Gary Mitchell said that. So that's the second time that's come up. And we're not even at Space Seed yet. I want to share one last thing before we move on. It's actually a quote from NBC. It's a letter that was sent in response to why they rejected Charlie X as, par as one of the initial pitches. This was before the show was actually uh, greenlit. So this was, when, this was one of the initial ideas. <clears throat> and I quote, We realize there is a great public as well as scientific interest in the research currently being done in the broad area of mental manifestations alluded to here in a very exaggerated fashion. It is logical to believe that in the era and locale in which our series is set that some portions of the powers attributed to Charlie X may possibly be accepted facts, but the fact of Charlie X having some of the powers he demonstrates in the story outlines can be 
the fact of Charlie X having some of the powers he demonstrates in this story outline can be possibly believed. Now, this is one of the weirdest and strangest uh, worded things I've ever read. But this is the letter that was sent as far as why they weren't actually 100% sure why they wanted him to have these powers. And, in fact, wanted it to be toned down a bit. It's worth noting this is kind of a gray area thing, because I've heard both directions on this. But it's also interesting that this is something Roddenberry pushed so damned hard. I mean, Trelane is coming up later. And as we've as we've already covered in the TNG stuff, Q was literally a a basis of Trelane, and by all accounts, Trelane is based on Charlie X. And let's not even get into Gary Mitchell into this mix, although the two are being designed at the same time. It's really a common element. I guess we all have that. You know, it's undeath for me, and war and politics. We we all have our things that we push. I guess that was just a thing that Roddenberry would like to push. I don't know. I did like this episode way more than I thought I would. So that's good. That's good. Uh, I am enjoying this stuff. I hope you're enjoying too. Because I'll see you next time.